0: Imagine yourself at one of the most important religious sites in the metro Twin Cities. From a massive parking lot, you and other pilgrims walk toward the sacred building. Its towering glass doors and chromed arches invite you into a welcoming space that orients new seekers and helps the regular faithful to enter into the spirit of the space. From visits to similar sanctuaries, you recognize celebratory banners, colors, and symbols that mark the rhythmic unfolding of holidays and festivals. The layout resembles a labyrinth lined by chapels devoted to various saints. Three-dimensional icons, statues, and moving images embody the good life and invite you to willingly submit to the disciplines that produce the saints evoked in the icons. No matter which chapel you enter, You already know the rituals by heart. A greeter offers to shepherd you through the experience, but graciously lets you explore on your own to find surprise and joy. When the spirit of the place leads you to what you're looking for, you bring it to the altar where a minister presides over the consummating transaction. You offer your sacrifice and you go out with the pastor's benediction, carrying a tangible object that confirms your participation in the good life embodied in that chapel's icons. By now, you may have realized that the religious site that I'm referring to is not the one that you find yourself sitting in this morning, but rather the place that found its halls flooded with the hustle and bustle of its most important day of the year, this past Friday. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, Worship, Worldview, and Cultural Formation, James K.A. Smith, who teaches philosophy and congregational ministry at Calvin College, shows how cultural liturgies, Cultural liturgies of the mall, the university, and the state aim our love to different ends precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. Smith argues that followers of Jesus need to understand how competing liturgies work so that worship can counterform us to desire God's kingdom. I start this morning with this analogy from Smith's writing because I think it very accurately depicts what we're trying to do as a church community. And even more specifically, it depicts the mindset that we hope to have as we enter into the Christmas season. We all land somewhere along the following spectrum. On the one end, there is the -the over-the-top excited about Christmas. Santa Claus, Rudolph, the rush of Black Friday, the ease of Cyber Monday. Christmas is a time for gifts and sweets and parties and gifts and family and gifts. Christmas carols are great and all, but really, let's be honest, who needs the carols when you've already been listening to Mariah Carey, Bing Crosby, Michael Buble, and John and Yoko since October? So that's one end of the spectrum. Then there's the other side of the spectrum, and it's one that looks more like the Grinch that stole Christmas. Keep Christ in Christmas is your anthem for the season. Santa Claus, stop it. Happy Holidays, not to me you don't. It's Merry Christmas, Christmas. You know how Starbucks had those plain red Christmas cups last year? Well, you probably haven't set foot in a Starbucks ever since. Now, our desire is to land somewhere in between these two polar ends of the spectrum, between the market-driven consumer Christmas and the Christmas Grinch who spends the entire season so grumpy that they miss out on the joy of such a joyous time in the church year. Indeed, tis the season to be jolly. But at the same time, how did the celebration of the arrival of a poor Jewish boy who became the savior of the world turn into a holiday where we run around like crazy buying massive amounts of things that no one really needs? It's clear that at some point we have forgotten the true meaning of Christmas. Advent Conspiracy is a series that we hope will encourage us to think about this season differently. The liturgy of the world teaches us to desire more and more material things each Christmas. It's driven by painting a picture, by telling you a story that your status quo is inadequate, that in order for you to find true joy and in order for you to find true meaning, you need to keep compiling more and more and more things. But our hope is to present a competing liturgy, one that gives greater meaning and greater significance to our Christmas celebrations. Advent Conspiracy was started by five pastors across the United States who decided to make Christmas a revolutionary event by encouraging their faith communities to think differently about Christmas. They encouraged their communities to partner with organizations, locally or globally, to intentionally decide that in a season where we so often give generously materially, to give generously in ways that have a significant kingdom impact. This is something that we here at City Church have been doing every Christmas season with our yearly giving project. And you've already heard a bit this morning about Hope Academy and and why we're excited for this opportunity to partner with them for this year's project. With this series, we are joining with thousands of churches across the world who have chosen to do likewise, to conspire to take Christmas from what it has become and return it to what it was meant to be. This Christmas we want to worship fully spend less give more and love all this morning we'll be looking at the first of these four tenets worship fully and in doing so i'm going to structure this morning's message in the form of vignettes or two mini sermons what i'm going to do is talk a bit about the season of advent i'm going to look at an example from the book of joshua as as our foundation of how to approach this season And then finally, we're gonna take a look at a story early in the Christmas narrative, a story about an obscure, insignificant girl given a distinct, significant task that turns her world and the entire world upside down. We'll look at her response to this news and see how we might be motivated to respond accordingly. In Advent, we hear the prophecy of the Messiah's coming as addressed to us, people who wait for the second coming. In Advent, we heighten our anticipation for the ultimate fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. When the wolf will lie down with the lamb, death will be swallowed up, and every tear will be wiped away. In this way, Advent highlights for us the larger story of God's redemptive plan. The season of Advent marks the beginning of the church calendar year. The four weeks leading up to Christmas, we have the opportunity to take time to prepare In a month, we'll celebrate Christmas Eve, the night where we remember the promised Messiah that the Old Testament prophets were longing for had finally arrived in the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man. A tradition of the Advent season involves the use of Advent candles. It's a symbol that represents the emphasis throughout the Bible that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Each week, we'll light an additional candle to mark the progression of the season, and with each week, more and more of the previous candles are burned down to represent the anticipation and passing of time leading up to Christmas Eve, where we will light the Christ candle as a symbol of the birth of Jesus. Over the course of the season, we'll spend some time thinking of the nativity scene, but our vision of Jesus can't stop there. One of the things that we can remind ourselves in this season is that Advent is not simply an opportunity to look back, but rather it's an opportunity to look forward. This is a common theme that we see throughout the Bible, and so I want to take a moment to look even further back than the Christmas narrative, looking back to a story that takes place in the book of Joshua. It's a story of the crossing of the Jordan River, and at this point, the Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness for about 40 years. And they are now ready and preparing to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And the only thing that lay between them at this point is the Jordan River. Now, at this point in time, the Jordan River would have been flooded. It was that time of year um, that the the rains were pouring down and the river was raging on. And so what happened was the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the flooded Jordan River. And as they did this, The water stopped flowing. The people crossed over dry land, and after they had all crossed, the river began to flow again. I'm gonna pick up this story in the beginning of chapter four. When all of the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the prophet of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel, a memorial forever. At our previous church, Sarah and I have had the opportunity in two consecutive years to lead a group of high school students on a mission trip to a jungle village in Ecuador. Five years ago, while we were there, at the end of each day, we would go with the students down to the river uh, to get a nice, cool swim in. It served as a refreshing reward at the end of a day of hard work. It was this beautiful flow of clear, cool mountain water that flowed through the warm, humid jungle village. Along the, side of, along the banks of the river were these massive Rocks. And on one particular afternoon, we started taking the rocks, and we built them up in a similar fashion as described here in Joshua 4. And you can see we got a really nice picture of the finished product, which was taken just moments before one of the little Ecuadorian boys went up and destroyed what we had built. (laughs) But we weren't intentionally building a monument to God and thanks for what he had done. The point that I want to make is that even though these stones were only aligned like that for a brief moment in time, I'm still able to vividly recall the context in which they were built. And they do still serve as a reminder of being able to see God at work. From there, it becomes my responsibility to share that with others and to not let that image, that that memory, become a stale, dry memory. If we're not careful, these these events, events that show God's faithfulness in our own lives, these events that we read about God's faithfulness in the Bible— If we're not careful, these events can simply become a memorial to a long past event and the stones become simply a cold, lifeless monument to the past. We are thousands of years past this moment in Joshua. This moment of stones, this monument of stones no longer exists. But we can still be reminded of their significance through the reading of God's word and through connecting these moments of God's faithfulness throughout salvation history this pile of stones was to be that anchor of faith, a reference point for later times when the path ahead wouldn't be as clear. So that when we look back to these traditions of faith, we might be propelled into the future, a future that although uncertain, we can face because we have these anchors of faith behind us plotting our course and giving us hope for the future. To simply look back and observe without participating would be to establish a museum of worship, where we observe rather than engage. And the hope is that as a community, we would engage and participate. I love the way that Swiss theologian, Jean-Jacques von Allman puts it. He says, when we perform Christian worship, we are part of the church of all places and all times. And this community binds us. To respect liturgical tradition implies a feeling of gratitude for what God has taught the church in the past, for the way in which he has inspired and guiding it. That is why there exists in Christian worship and its unfolding certain forms which have such a theological and anthropological plenitude, are of such monumental importance that the church never exhausts their vitality, never wears them out in spite of constant use. And so it's our desire that this Christmas season, that we will look back at the fulfilled promises of God for the sake of continuing to move forward our worship should continually help us in rehearsing the gospel in our own lives. As we sing together, as we confess of our sins, as we are assured of our salvation through the work of Christ on the cross, as we taste the gospel through the breaking of bread at the Lord's table, which we'll do together as a community next Sunday in communion, we are being prepared to go from this place better equipped to face the trials that will come to us in this life. So with that in mind, Let's now look back with the lens of also looking ahead as we begin to look at this Christmas story by hearing of Mary's response to the news that would change the world for all of time. As we remember this story, the story of a young girl in the Bible who had a lot of reasons to be a Grinch at the first Christmas. She's a member of the poorest class. She is a part of the people that have no political power or rights. She's young, she's female, in a culture that treats women little more than property. She's a virgin, engaged to be married, and an angel visits her and tells her that she will give birth to the Son of God. With the news of her pregnancy, her fiancé is considering calling the marriage off, which would likely mean that she would never find a husband who would have her. Christmas is coming, the very first Christmas, and in spite of all that she has to be worried about, to be concerned about, to be upset about. The Bible tells us in Luke 1 that she's filled with joy and she's filled with a song. The song goes like this. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Mary's deepest inner person, her soul, her spirit is flooded with joy and delight. And she directs all of her worship to God because he has seen her. There's a couple of things to notice here in the opening verse of Mary's hymn of happiness. First of all, notice that Mary knows God personally. She says, my soul rejoices in God, my savior. Her relationship is real and it's personal. And it's real and personal because she recognizes that it's God that sees her. Verse 46 says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. The reason for this worshipful response is, is that the soul, one of the deepest longings of the soul is to be seen and to be known. There's something significant about being seen, being acknowledged, being lifted out of the obscurity of, that validates your life. There's there's a hidden question that many of of us ask every day. Does somebody see my life? Does my life matter? It's all part of this desire. We're designed to desire relationship. And I think a way in which we see that today, somewhat ironically, is in the way in which we display our lives on social media. Just think of the word selfie. It's a picture of your own face sent out to the world. This speaks volumes to our desire to be seen so much that we would take a picture of ourselves and show it to people that already know what we look like. On a road trip to visit family last year, um, Sarah and I were listening to a a program on NPR, and it was about adolescence and social media interactions. And and what was fascinating and really quite disheartening in in some ways was, was this notion that if you didn't get a like, a comment, or some sort of interaction on your post within a matter of seconds of posting it, these adolescents would immediately feel social anxiety. Maybe my peers don't like what I posted. Maybe they're not noticing me. The second guessing begins almost instantaneously if there's a lack of instant gratification. Now, I think there's a lot more that could be said on this, but the and how it relates to this is that this desire spills out of us. We long to be seen. We long to be known. We long to be acknowledged. It's important to be seen and to be known. It's one of our deepest needs. It's no small thing. But to be seen and to be known by God is what the soul is ultimately longing for. And when you look at Mary's song, what is striking is that her joy comes from knowing that God sees her in her obscurity, in her humility, in her lowliness. God sees her not because of her intellect, not because of her social status, not because of her importance. God looks and sees her as she is in her humble state. And the result is that her soul feels the infinite relief of being seen and known by God. It is enough, it fills her soul, and she bursts into worship. And after she sees and experiences this for her own life, she says, this mercy, this mercy is for all those who fear him, who respect, wait, and listen to God. This mercy of being seen and being known is for each and every generation, for those who wait for God, for those who trust in God. This is what the text tells us. It tells us, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She connects her circumstances to the larger story of what God has done in the past and what God is doing in this moment. God has remembered her. He has remembered his people. Mary is recounting God's faithfulness and continued deliverance of her people. The text says he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. This is the connecting theme here from the passage in Joshua to this response of Mary. Mary is looking at her current circumstances. She's looking back on the promises and faithfulness of God. She acknowledges God's work in her current circumstances, and between the two, she recognizes the significance that this moment has on the entirety of God's plan. This is the story of Christmas, that God has seen us and that he sees those in need. This is why, as a church, we've chosen to celebrate Christmas this year by worshiping fully the God who sees and loves us, and in response— we are called to see and love those that are in need around us and around the world. This Advent, the invitation for you is to not run from your humble estate, your feelings of insignificance, but instead to lean into it and know that God looks upon the humble and invites them into his great story. Lean into your ordinary life and find a God that sees you and like Mary, worship fully, and worship joyfully. In the end, Christmas is about the incarnation. It's about God seeing humanity, seeing us and becoming one of us. God, the creator of all things, present and eternal, dissolved into obscurity over 2,000 years ago so that we might know our significance. We can look back at the faithfulness of God throughout generations. With all of this, we are being called to remember, not for the sake of remembering, but for the sake of entering into the story to take a step of faith as a community of believers into the community to which God has called us to serve. That is our desire this Christmas, to tell the story of the God who sees us and who sees the world, and to celebrate that story by following suit, giving ourselves in worship and service to God and to others. That is why we want to spend less, give more, love all, and worship fully this Christmas. Let us pray. Father, all-powerful and ever-living God, we do well always and everywhere to give you thanks through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When he humbled himself to come among us as a man, he fulfilled the plan that you formed long ago and opened for us the way to salvation. And now, Lord, we watch for the day, for the day that salvation promised will be ours when Christ, our Lord, will come again in his glory. And it's in his name we pray.